looking at all of the events that surround Jesus, our Savior, being put to death. And so these first three songs help us focus on that, what Jesus did for us. And, of course, we're going to be partaking of communion this evening. And so I just encourage you to take these songs and meditate on them and be reminded of our great Savior and the wonderful deeds that he's done for us and how he gave us his life in our place and then, of course, was raised again so that we could have eternal life. Let's stand and worship together. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun. Chains that bind us. 
Watching online, I want to encourage you, take a moment and, and gather up uh, some bread and, and some juice, something that you'll be able to celebrate communion with us, because at the end of our study tonight, taking a look at this passion of Jesus, my hope is that as we journey through these passages, that you'll come to that place of a greater appreciation of, of how valuable you are to Jesus because of what He has done for you. So many times we say, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Great. What does that really mean? Do we really stop and meditate and reflect on what He went through on our behalf and the substitutionary action of sacrificing Himself for us? Everything that we will read tonight was really... Our punishment. It really should have been us. And He's standing in our place. 
Now we're coming to our passage tonight in John, and keep in mind, John is working through these passages and writing all of these things so that we will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't go into a great amount of detail as the other synoptics do, but he definitely gives us the passion that is within this. And we're going to see some pictures that go along with this that will be reminders for those of you that have been to Israel with us and others, some others, it will bring some, um, some concepts together to wrap your head around this, this punishment. By this time, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas in the garden, gone to the trials before Caiaphas, Annas, Pilate, multiple times, and now is the sentencing. Now is the sentence is actually being carried out within this. And we pick up in this narrative of John that is bringing him back to this place of now bringing about the punishment. And Jesus did all this for us, for you. I often wonder, if I was the only one, the only one, that Jesus would have had to redeem. Would he have done it for one? And the answer is absolutely yes. So as we pick up in verse 19 or chapter 19 verse 1, we pick up with this narrative after the people have cried out for Barabbas to be released in verse 40. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And to give him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I bring him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And so when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by the law we ought to die. he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. We'll pause there for a minute. And we start with this first action that is taken against Jesus, this, this physical punishment, where do you realize that he was whipped for you? And it's not a little bit of a beating. It's a torture. Pilate tried and miserably failed in trying to get Jesus released. Could Pilate have released Jesus? Sure, he could. But what was he afraid of? The people. He was afraid of the Jews that were crying out. He was afraid of a revolt. And so what did he do? Well, he did what any common sense person... Let me beat him up, and hopefully, if I beat him enough, then the people will have sympathy. That they'll have sympathy for him. And, and so let me beat him. You've got to keep in mind that the Romans were really good at torturing people. They had figured out a way to be able to make an example of people. Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, was actually a peace that was incurred by force, creating great fear among the people. In fact, in Luke's account, in Luke 23, 13 to 
16, it says, As Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. Behold, having examined him before you, note, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you made against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Wait a minute, he didn't do anything wrong. Why are you punishing him? He was tried and found guiltless. Are we guiltless? Our sin is ever before us. But Pilate says, I will punish him and release him. Why? In hopes that you'll have sympathy. I'll do a little bit. Now, what was the punishment about? Well, the whipping or the scourging was also called a scorpion. It was a cat of nine tails. It was leather thongs. And there's a couple of pictures I want to show you of what it would have looked like within this. As you can see, it was short and there would have been lead balls or metal balls and bone and, and, and things that were meant to cause great harm. In fact, the second per picture will show you a little bit more within that where you can see the balls with spikes. This was not a normal whipping. It wasn't like dad got mad at you, took off his belt and gave you a spanking. This would create great hematomas across the back. The metal was designed to hit, and they were good at it. They would hit and dig in and then pull hunks of flesh off of the back. The one that was being whipped would be stretched against a pole, hands tied, and we talked about that on Sunday with Paul, hands tied up against the pole in order to be able to stretch the back out tight. Now, according to Roman practice, there were three different levels of whippings that would end up happening. One was fustigio, and it was the punishment for small offenses. It was a hard, kind of like a hard slap on the wrist. It was just like the base level. It wasn't like this, but they would actually whip them, but it wasn't really like, I'm going to tear you up, kind of a beating. The second one was flagelletto. And this one was more severe, but it was meant not to bring about death. Now, this would have been the one that Paul would have been beaten by. And so the guards were trained in what level of punishment that they should give. And the third one is verberatio. This is the one that Jesus had encountered. It was the most severe, and it was designed to create the greatest amount of injury and blood loss which normally would kill people within this. Now, keep in mind, Jesus has been up all night. This is the next day. No doubt he's had no food and no water, and, and he's been mocked and, and all of these things within this. This scourging was so intense that later on when Jesus is carrying the crossbeam, that he can't carry it anymore. Remember, as he walks along, there was a man, his name was what? Simon of Cyrene, who was forced to help carry the crossbeam in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-two, It says this, as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. Could you imagine 
You haven't done anything wrong. You're there watching the, this crowd and this, this guilty man, this prisoner, if you don't know who he is, and he can't make it, and a Roman guard grabs you and says, you're going to carry the rest, his cross being the rest of the way. You're going to help him. And you would be now associated with this man. This was Simon. But back to Jesus being whipped. Not only was he whipped, but we read where he was being mocked by the soldiers in verses 2 and 3. Jesus became fair game. Now, could you imagine Roman soldiers who hated Jews? They hated the Jews because there was a group of Jews, as we covered on Sunday, that were the, the radicals, and there was members of the Sicarii, the Jews. Remember the Sicarii, the ones that had the little swords? They would go up and they would go up and they would stab people. And Josephus talks about some of the Sicarii that would kill the Roman soldiers. They'd sneak up and stab them in the back. Pilate says this, this Jew, have at it, guys. Can you imagine turning Roman soldiers, no holds barred, against this Jewish man? You know you can't kill him, but could you bring him close to death? And so they begin to mock him. They put a robe on him. They begin to beat him. And they say, tell us who hit you within this. And they would play games within this. There's a place in, in the, the floor of the Antonio Fortress. When you come out of the Antonio Fortress, there is a monastery called the Sisters of Zion. And down on the bottom floor, there's a basement. Now again, those of you that have been to Israel remember walking down to this basement and the basement area is called the Lithostratos. Here's a couple of pictures of the Lithostratos that are there. If you notice the circle with the triangles, it would have been a dice game. So the soldiers could have played this dice game. It was a common dice game. You know, soldiers, they got to, what are they going to do? They're going to play cribbage? They got to do something. So they have this dice game. Well, what are they playing? They're going to play games with the opportunities to be able to, what? Beat the prisoners. Let's roll the dice. Who's going next? George, you're up next. Go at it. And they have all of these games within this. And when we go to Israel, you can go along the Lithostratos and you can see these games that they would play. And they'd roll the dice and they'd figure out who was going up and what they were doing. And it was just a game of chance. And so they literally made sport out of beating on Jesus and mocking Him. Now, Question, could Jesus have stopped this at any time? After a beating and after the whipping, could he have said, you know what, enough. It's my turn. I'm going to get even. With one word, could he have wiped them all out? What kept him on that path? What kept him going towards the cross? You and I. Because He had to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin in order for us to be redeemed. What moved Him forward? His love for you. His love for me. You say, well, He didn't know me yet. Oh, really? He knew you before the beginnings and the foundations of the earth. He knew you. Which is amazing to me. It's mind-blowing to think about the fact that Jesus in His divinity would know every person and say, I am dying for the sins of every person. It's 
Scripture tells us that God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. For some of us, He doesn't have to count very far. But within that, He sees you. And He sees these. Not only that, the beating, the robe, the, all the different things that they do. But they put a crown of thorns on Him in mockery. And you say, okay, thorns. What's the big deal about a rose bush? Mm, no. You want to see the kind of thorns that they used? These are the kind of thorns that they used. When you go outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, there are thorn bushes with these thorns on them. They're practical, right? You've got to think practical. Are they going to go very far? No, they're going to go right out to the thorn bush and say, here it is. No doubt they probably rolled the dice and George got the, got the short end of it and say, George, it's your turn to, to go get those. Whatever the case is. But they made a crown. And they put this crown of thorns on his head. This, this thorny branch. And, and so they put it in and they mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. They would slap him in the face. You imagine. You're beaten. Your back is turned to hamburger. You got this crown of thorns pressed in your head. They take this rod and this robe and they put it on your hand as the accounts tell us. And they beat you with it and they mock you. Hail King of the Jews and there's your king. You know, it's so funny. We get so worried about people feeling poor, or thinking poorly of us. Well, what about their opinion? You know what? Look at how they treated Jesus. Our very sin even mocks us. And Jesus took all of that. He took all of that, the slaps and, and, and the rebukes and the contempt and all of that. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and from spitting. And Isaiah 52:14 says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form was more than any sons of man. When they got done with Jesus, if you've ever seen anybody with a beating, he didn't even look like a man. We have this real sanctified picture of Jesus with a little bit of blood. No. The punishment that he took from man. And what did he do to deserve it? What did we do to deserve it? Our sin. But He did nothing. We think about the bread that we're going to receive that represents His body and how broken and at what level it was broken to. And the rejection of His own people. There isn't a person in this room or watching online that has suffered to this extent that kind of rejection. That kind of an injustice. So many people say, well, life's not fair. The world's not fair. You want to know what unfair is? That's not fair. But He did it. He did it. Because of you. Because He values you. Because you have that much value. He holds you that dear to His heart so that you will be with Him for eternity. 
These enemies, they sarcastically mocked him. These Romans, these Gentiles, mocking him. King of the Jews. And as a lamb led to the slaughter. So what does Pilate do in verses 4 and 5? He comes out and he brings him out. Now, again, Pilate's strategy, bless his heart, he didn't know any better. Thought if I beat this guy up enough, that sheer humanity would look at him and say, okay, that's good. But could you imagine, imagine how full of hatred that the crowd was, was motivated by? And, and, and where does it come from? Human nature, and I believe a demonic delusion. Can Satan create such a demonic delusion that will drive people to the most base element to treat somebody below human, to treat somebody subhuman. Is there a kind of sin and demonic delusion that will do that? Yeah, there is. Absolutely there is. There is a certain kind of sin and demonic influence that will drive people. You think about some of these, these mass murderers or, or what humans will do to children or some of these other things and you look at it and you go that is that level of depravity that people have fallen to to treat people in such a way but Pilate brought him out he brought him out and he says this in verse 5 behold the man the phrase is eke homo it's Latin. It literally means behold the man. This is a painting, a picture of, what it, of a depiction. It's an artist's depiction of what it looks like. Pilate brings him out and says, behold, note he says, the man. Pilate doesn't acknowledge him as God. He doesn't acknowledge him as Messiah. He acknowledges him as a man. Very human. So that the sympathy is there and he says basically to the crowd, look at Jesus now. This man this, that is so beaten down, do you really think he's that much of a threat to you? You're so worried, religious leaders. Is he that much of a threat? And it's important to note, Jesus didn't say a word. As a lamb that was led to the slaughter within that. Why? Why? Because He was taking our guilt and our shame for our sin. Why? So that we would be guiltless. So that we would be shameless. So that He could take His righteousness and put it on our account. Pilate was, without realizing, was making this, this amazing theological statement. Why? You've got to understand, there's a lot of people that will say that Jesus really wasn't a man. He just gave, gave the appearance that he was a man. No, fully man, fully human, suffering everything for us so that he would die in our stead, die in our place. He wasn't just giving off the appearance of God. But he is flesh. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And with all of this going on, verses 6 and 7, what do the people yell? Crucify him. Crucify him. How far down can depravity go? 
How bad can sin lead an individual? Well, Rome wouldn't tolerate any riots. The people were yelling out, crucify him. He wanted to keep the peace. So, what was Pilate's plan C? You take him and you crucify him. Wait a minute, Pilate, you're in charge. You found him innocent. Just release him. Mm -mm. That was God's plan A to go to the cross. And it was important to understand that both the Gentiles and the Jews would be guilty of crucifying Jesus. Why? Because Jesus died for the sins of the world. That the Jews alone would not be guilty of crucifying Jesus. That it was the Jews and the Gentiles. So everybody would be guilty of that and participate in that. Within this, the, the crowd cries out, the Jews, it says, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. What were they talking about? Well, the punishment for, for blasphemy by calling yourself God, according to Leviticus 24.16, was you had to die, and it was by stoning. But stoning wasn't good enough for these Jews. They wanted the most, get this, excruciating, the word excruciating comes from the cross, pain that you could go through. That means that Jesus experienced the greatest level of pain, sorrow, suffering, and despair that any one of us could ever, ever experience. And yet he overcame it. By rising again. Now what does that mean for you and I? Not only does He love you to that degree, but He has given us the victory to that degree. You have victory because He went through this and overcame it. That means that you don't have to give in to it. Within this. The Jews saw Jesus as a threat. The Romans saw Jesus as a problem. And so they decided to... Do away with it. If you look at verses 8 through 11, it says, Therefore Pilate heard this statement, crucify him. And he was even more afraid, note, and he entered into the praetorium again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, and I love this. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Now, Pilate's frustrated. What is with you? Come here, we got to talk. And he brings him inside and he says, where are you from and why are they so mad at you? What's, what's going on? And Jesus doesn't answer him. Why? It's important to understand that regardless of what was going on, Jesus was always in control. He never was not in control. No one was taking his life. He was giving it freely. How do we know that? Because of the statement that Jesus said, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to free you or crucify you? Jesus said, no, you don't. The only power you got is what's been given to you. Which tells us a lot. Pilate was designated by God and led by God to take Jesus to the cross. That was the plan. And it wasn't going to be interrupted. 
Pilate, you're a puppet. You don't have any of the authority. Now, he's challenging him. Where did you come from? One of the things that is fulfilled, and again, these fulfillments in Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that was silent before his ears. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus was not going to get into an argument. What's not mentioned in John's account is Pilate's wife. Now, this is a lesson to all of us men. Listen to your wives. Pilate's wife comes to him and warns him and says, you really don't want anything to do with this guy. Within this, she had a dream and a warning. And within this, in fact, in Matthew 27, 19, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that note. Righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. She had a dream and she goes to her husband and says, you don't want anything to do with him. He's righteous. But, like a knucklehead, he's not listening to his wife. Why? Because God had ordained that Pilate would sentence him to death. Pilate would later, according to Josephus, be removed from office and exiled to Vienna. And within that, he would eventually commit suicide. Imagine how the sin would follow him. How the guilt and the shame that would follow him. Because he made that choice. Did Pilate have a choice? Yes, he had a choice. Did he have a warning? Yes, he had a warning, but yet he followed through. Because God's sovereignty and prescription would say, this is what you're going to do. But he still had that choice. He had free will. And there's a tension that is there. Well, you can't miss verse 11, though. In verse 11, Jesus does answer him. And he says, ultimately, God is sovereign and God is in control. Question. Is God reactive to evil or is he proactive to evil? Is God reactive or proactive? He's proactive. God does not react to things. God doesn't react to anything. He is sovereign over all things. And so he knew that this would be the extent, which is amazing to me because when God the Father offers up God the Son, Jesus, he knew exactly what he was going to put his Son through. Can you imagine that? As a father, you're going to go through this. And I'm going to give you up for them. That's powerful. The love of the Father. For who? For you. For me. To give up His Son. His one and only Son. Through the trials, through the mockeries. Could you imagine? And as I was studying today, I was considering this. As a father, if I was watching my kid going through what Jesus was going through, how his heart must have been breaking to know that this was going on and to know that wasn't it because in a, in a few moments, I'm going to have to judge the sins of the world against him. For who? For us. That's powerful. You want to know the depth of the love of God? This is it. We will never fully understand this. 
Jesus does say, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so the question is, who's the he? Well, a lot of people think that it's Judas. I don't think so. I think it was that Judas was just a tool that God was using within this. And I don't think it was necessarily just the high priest or the Jewish leaders. I think it was Pilate. I think it was the Jewish leaders. And I think it was all the Jewish people, he as being in plural. Everyone. Their guilt is there. Why? Because when you know the truth and you reject the truth when it's right in front of you, you're guilty. You're guilty. When you share the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus to somebody clearly, and they understand clearly that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and they reject that, they remain in their guilt. And so when they stand before the throne of God, you know what the one question is going to be? Not how good you were. What did you do with my son Jesus? Did you accept him? As Lord and Savior, like the disciples in the church? Or did you reject Him, like all of those that were yelling, crucify Him, get Him out of here? And Jesus says that's the greater guilt, because it's an eternal guilt. Well, as Jesus, at Pilate, goes, he, he goes on in verses 12 to 16, and he says this, As a result, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you would release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be... A king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, or the bema seat, at the place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, it's Gabbatha. And within that, and now there was a day of preparation. So we look at this, this day of preparation, the Passover that's there, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king within this. And they said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And they said to the chief priest, we, the, the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. And so he then handed him over to them to be crucified. How far does apostasy go? How far can a rejection go? Apostasy and rejection will go as far as insanity. You've got to catch what they're, what they're doing. Pilate brings them out. He, again, Jesus has been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been mocked. He's been, he's been tried multiple times. There is no guilt at all. He brings them out before all of the people. He attempts multiple times, and the people are saying, no, we don't want him. No, we don't want him. No, we don't want him. And, and within this, he, they basically say, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Well, what's he doing? The people are now getting personal. If you let him go, we're going to tell Caesar that you're not his friend. Well, if you weren't a friend of Caesar as a ruler, Roman ruler, then what does that make you? An enemy. If you don't kill him, we're going to tell Caesar that you are no friend of his, which means you're going to die. What will a man do to save his own neck? To save his own skin. And notice the manipulation of the crowd. Where they are turning on him, Pilate, and setting him up. 
the irony is this, and it's thick. These are Jews who are supposed to be worshiping Yahweh, God, only one God. Their allegiance is only to be Yahweh God. And what are they doing? They're saying, we are rejecting Yahweh God. Our allegiance is with Caesar. We are worshiping Caesar who made himself out to be a God. What happens when man rejects the one true God and worships the false God? That's apostasy. That's apostasy. And so here's Pilate. And you got to understand, Pilate's under pressure. What am I going to do? They're going to riot on me. And if I have another riot, I'm dead. So now there's a tension. I've got to keep the riot. Oh, now they're going to say that I'm, a friend, I'm not a friend of Caesar. Now I'm going to lose my life. Oh, and by the way, as John accounts for it, the Jewish Sabbath is about to happen. Now we've got a time crunch. I'm running out of time. Because the Sabbath is about to happen within this. The time that was taking place was the sixth hour according to Roman time. So this is 6 a.m. in the morning. On Friday morning. And it was the preparation day before the Sabbath. During the Passover week. In Mark 15.25 states that Jesus was crucified in the third hour of the Jewish time. Which was 9 a.m. So 6 a.m. his trial is going on. Sunrise he comes out of the Jewish trial. 6 a.m. he's before Pilate. All this is taking place. By 9 a.m. he is put on the cross. They've got to get him off the cross and dead and off the cross prior to sundown on Friday. Because against Jewish law, no body can be up on a cross after, during the Sabbath. It's against their Jewish law within this. We know that darkness fell at the sixth hour, according to Matthew's account, and it was dark for three hours. So Jesus started to be crucified at 9 a.m. At noon, the highest point of the sunlight, darkness fell all over the land, and it was silent from noon until 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., which was the ninth hour, according to Matthew 27, Jesus would cry out, it is finished, and he would die. Something that would normally take multiple days to complete would happen in a matter of hours within this. And they make this pledge to Caesar. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And say, we only have one king, and that is Caesar. Is there a place where somebody comes to an ultimate rejection of God where there is no turning back? Yeah. Yeah, the Bible calls it an abomination of desolation. It's a point of no return within that. When is that? I don't know. I don't know. But these guys are there. Pilate hands them over to be crucified within this. And so we enter into the crucifixion phase. And verse 17 and 18 says, Therefore they took Jesus and they went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And here they crucified him with two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Within this, we see that, that Jesus is put up on this cross. Now the soldiers would carry him out, and he had to carry his own cross piece. The criminals had to carry their own um, method of torture, the cross piece. It was a form of humiliation within that. 
I mean, I guess today people would have to carry like their own electric chair or whatever it is that was there. So everybody would know he would be stripped down to just a loincloth and walk to the, the, the place. Question, did Jesus know that he was going to die via crucifixion? Sure he did. In Luke 14, 27, Jesus would refer, refer to it. He says, come follow me. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? That means that we have to humble ourselves, die to ourselves, just as Jesus did. Now, he wouldn't carry the, the whole cross because it was average that the whole crosses were about 300 pounds if there were a full Roman cross. He would carry what was called a pitibulum, pit, P-I-T-I-B-U-L-U-M. And here's a picture of what it would have looked like. There were cross pieces that would go up on a post. There would be a settle that would be set up for the feet, and it would hold it in place. And there was either the traditional cross piece with a board on top or just a, a, another piece that would sit on top, and it would be set on a, on a talon. And what would happen is the people would be hoisted up and set up onto it. So the post would always be in the ground. So the post was fixed in the ground. They would carry the cross piece. Did they do a lot of crucifixions? Yes. It was recorded once by Josephus that as many as 300 crosses lined the road to Damascus coming out of Jerusalem. Why? Pax Romana. Create fear. As you're coming into Jerusalem that is governed by Rome, this could be you. And they would leave the criminals on these crosses. He would carry the cross on a road called the, that's today called the Via Dolorosa, or the way of suffering within that. Carry this cross all the way through. John doesn't give us all the details with this, but we know that Simon the Cyrene was carrying with that. And for all the Jews, this would have triggered a picture. Can you remember somebody that carried their own means of death up a hill? Led by the father? His name was Isaac. In Genesis 22.6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and took him by the hand and the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked up together. Where was that? Mount Zion. This same hill. This same place. When God had established this covenant with Abram, where Abram was called to sacrifice his son, your one and only son. Can you imagine? What a picture. And here Jesus is doing the same thing. He would go to this place called Golgotha, the skull. Or in Latin, we call it Calvary. What does it look like? This is what it looks like today. Well, actually, yeah, let me give you the map. So, no, you can go back to the map. I'm sorry. So, the Antonio Fortress is here. This is where he would have been tried with Pilate's quarters. There are two sites from the Antonio Fortress outside of the walls. This would have been the old walls at that time. The traditional Golgotha is here, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is today. If you go out here to Golgotha, this is outside of the Damascus Gate. This is called Gordon's Calvary here. This is the other possible site. One of the two places, it is there. I tend to believe, my opinion, is that this is the site. Why? One of the reasons why is because of this. 
the picture of the side of the mountain at Gordon's Calvary is this. If you notice, two eyes, nose, and the bottom part of a jaw that is on this hillside that is right here. Just outside of this hillside is a tomb, and there's an incredible garden that is there, and an unfinished tomb, and inside there there is a, a finished slab and an unfinished slab. There's a 2,000-gallon cistern that is in this tomb, and it's called Gordon's Calvary. If you take a look at it, this is what it looks like, what it looked like prior to, well, when this was paved over, it's now a bus station that is here. But you can see the eyes, and then Gordon's Calvary would have been, is way over here, not, not in this picture that is there. And so he would have been taken out to this place. In 325 A.D., Helena of Constantinople went around and she was looking for all of the Christian sites to build these sites. And so that's where the traditional site uh, was set up. But later on, Gordon's Calvary, or Gordon, uh, it's, it's called Gordon's Calvary because of the guy that found this tomb. And what they did is, it's, it's an amazing story. They were looking at all of these sites, they were finding these, ex, these excavations, and so they were looking at these tombs, and there's tombs all over the place. But they find this skull, and then they go to this hillside, and inside this hillside they find a tomb that was full of trash. They started pulling out the trash out of this tomb, and they find two beds and a waiting room all inside of this. And then they find the cistern, and then they find the olive press, and then they find the wine press, and this massive area that was a garden. You don't find that anywhere near the traditional site. But we know based on Scripture that Joseph of Arimathea had given his tomb and he was a rich man for Jesus to borrow. Why did he need to borrow it? He only needed it for three days. so It was just a short time. Jesus was crucified between two robbers. And we know the account. The two that were there, they mocked him. They were put on a platform. He was nailed to the cross. And again, we have this real... Special memory of these nails. No, it was excruciating. Here's a couple of pictures of the nails. On the left are two artifacts that were actually discovered of how they had nailed people to the cross. If you notice, this nailing was through the side ankle right there, and it would go through the bone. This is another one through a bone through the side ankle, and so the feet were nailed sideways, or they could be turned. And the nails were driven through. These are no little nails. These are not roofing nails. It's estimated that the nails that were used to hang Jesus on the cross were upwards of nine inches long. Nine inch spikes that were put in. This is another picture of the spike that, it, that, was, that was used to drive through that ankle. If I could have the, other, the next picture, that'd be great. So, this is a doctor. There was a doctor that... Uh, did a medical review, I can't remember the guy's name, um, that did a medical review of the whole crucifixion and how it happened. And it's amazing, amazing accounts. It's, it's about a 20-page paper that he put it together. But if you notice, one of the methods was, this is a cross-section view, it would go through the metatarsals onto the stipe where the foot, and it would hold the place, and you'd have to push this. It would right, run right into the metatarsal bone, and the placement would be between the second and third. This was a science. They knew what they were doing. The Romans had, had perfected this type of crucifixion within this. And so they would drive the nail through here, and as you would hang on the cross, if I have the next picture, please. 
The other spikes would be driven through the wrist, not through the hand. If it was done through the hand, the hands would rip out. The nail would rip out right through the bones. So they put it through the wrist to hold you, and then they tie a rope around just to make it a little bit harder for you. And within this, these, these nails that are here, this one shows a 5 to 7 inch, and they could be, like I said, up to 9 inches. They would run right through the wrist, right through the, 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 the flexor, missing the main arteries, and you would hang yourself. And they would take you, and, and death by crucifixion was really asphyxiation. They would put you up on this cross. They would stretch one. They would nail one arm and stretch the other arm out as far as it'll go, and then they would drive that spike in. So then you were actually hanging on your own body weight. The only way that you could breathe as you hang, the weight on your diaphragm would diminish your ability to breathe. So in order to get any breath, you had to push up, lift yourself up to take a breath, and then relax because of your own body weight. And you would have to push up. And down. What was Jesus' back like? Hamburger. Had he been up all night? Yes. Had he been beaten? Yes. This is the torture. When we think that those that will die in their sins, the Bible says that they will be cast out to outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. For how long? Forever. They will have a body that they will experience this pain in. For how long? Forever. And this is what Jesus endured in our stead. So that we would not have to experience that kind of pain and suffering that is there within this. And so within this, they would also write a a, on what was called the Titulus. Just prior to Jesus' death, in verse 19, it says this, Pilate wrote an inscription and put on the cross. It is written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That is in this. Now many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am, but write, I am king of the Jews. Pilate says, What I've written is written. Now, what was a titleist? The titleist was traditionally, if I can have that slide, a board that was put either on the head of the cross or on, on the side of the cross, and so it was written in Hebrew, and then it was also written in Greek, and then it was written in Latin. Why? Because those are the major dialects of the, of the land. So as people would come by, they would see what the charges were. What was Jesus charged with? Being king of the Jews. You've got to understand, this is Pilate's little dig. They didn't like it. Why? Because they didn't want to see the Jewish king on a cross. So say, he said he was. King of the Jews. That would make Jesus a heretic within this. But he said, no, we're not going to do that. What I've written is written. And it was his declaration. He refused to change it. Then we get into the crowd. Look at verses 23 to 27. It says, and then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments made four parts, a part for every soldier, in the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots 
for it to decide who shall this will be. And so to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did this, these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw this, his mother, his disciple, he says, he said to the whom he loved standing by this to be John. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took him into the household. Now, we look at what's going on here and, and you can't help but miss or see the, the indifference of the people, the soldiers. What are they? It's another day in the office. How many people have they crucified? Hundreds. What do they want for their bonus? Whatever they can get from the dead guy. So they took Jesus' clothes, his sandals, or whatever it was, and they divided it up, the shoes and the belt, because they were indifferent about this. But the outer garment that was woven together, the priestly robe, in Psalm 22:18 says, They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots, fulfilling Scripture. It's been said, and it was done by a mathematician, in order for all the Scriptures prophesied about Jesus' death, for one person to fulfill it, it would be 10 to the 17th power in order for him to be able to fulfill all of those scriptures. You can't make this stuff up. It's the reality of what had happened. Now again, soldiers indifferent. But who's at the foot? Mary, Jesus' mother, Cleopas, John, the disciple. And Jesus says, Mary, your son, John, take care of my mom. Who's not at the cross? Jesus' brothers. Jesus has no other family but his mother that is there. None of the other disciples except for John is there. Jesus is basically dying alone. And suffering. Mary Magdalene is there. But all of this, and you think about how deeply wounded Mary, his mother, is. Now, God, his father, is watching this. Surrendering his son. But what about Mary? How was her heart feeling? Well, if you remember back, in the temple when Jesus was dedicated. And within this, Simeon would say this in Luke 2.35, And a sword shall pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Your heart will break so that the hearts of many would be revealed. In other words, the sins of many would be covered. Mary was also losing her son. This is, this is not an easy, yeah, Jesus just died on the cross for my sin kind of thing. This is traumatic. Why? Mary is losing her son. Why? For you, for me, on our behalf. So that the hearts of many would be revealed and healed. And Jesus, still loving, 
loves his mom and says, John, take care of mom. Tradition has it that John would take Mary back to Ephesus where they, she would live out the rest of her days within this. It, and the other thing that I think is interesting, the oldest son was responsible for the, the mom. We don't see Joseph, he's out of the picture. But why does Jesus give Mary to John? Why doesn't Jesus give Mary to James, the other brother, who ends up being head of the church? Because James is not a believer yet. And so John gives Mary, his mother, into the hands of a believer to take care of her. Powerful within this. And so we see the account go on where Jesus makes His redemption and His mission complete. Notice in verse 30. It says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine... I'm sorry, I jumped too far ahead there. So within this, the... They were all standing at the cross. And then the disciples said, Behold your mother, verse 28. And then Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, what's powerful about that? One, Jesus knew that everything had been completed. There's a fancy word that I'll teach you. It's called tetelestai. Can you say it? Tetelestai. It literally means it is finished. What was finished? Well, John gives us a shorter narrative. But Jesus actually had seven different sayings that were on the cross. But what, what was finished? The penalty for sin. And he took this sip. Of wine, his last drink, if you will. And it says that he gave up his spirit. Why? Because all scripture has been fulfilled. In John 12, 23, Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What was the glorification? That he did the job that he needed to do. You know what's powerful about that phrase, it is finished? It means the sin debt that you and I have was paid for then. What does that mean to you? That means you don't have to do anything. You cannot add to your salvation. You cannot do anything better than what Jesus has done in order to make God happy because Jesus had made God happy, satisfied the law. It is finished. What does that mean? That means as a child of God, you stand perfect because the penalty of your sin was paid for. What if I still sin? The blood of Jesus continues to cleanse you of all that sin. Do you know that the blood of Jesus has been cleaning people for over 2,000 years? Isn't that amazing? You want to talk about something that has got long standing and working. Over 2,000 years. For people that hadn't even been born yet. Their sin is already being paid for. In God's economy, within this, it's powerful. And it doesn't mean that everybody that is born is saved, but only those that confess that Jesus is Lord and accept that free gift of forgiveness will be saved. It is not universalism, but the sin debt is and gift of life, the grace gift is there for everyone, fulfilling all Scripture. 
When Jesus was about to die, he took that that hyssop. Why? Because it again fulfills scripture. Psalm twenty two fifteen. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to the, my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They also gave me gall for my food and thirst, that they gave me vinegar to drink. In the time of David, David is writing a psalm about the cross. All by God. Powerful. Powerful. And so this, this hyssop sponge is dipped. Why hyssop? Do you remember in Exodus, when the angel of death was about to go over the houses of Israel? What was dipped in the blood of the lamb and put on the doorposts? Hyssop branch. The hyssop branch was put into the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb, and put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over the house. This is Passover, and Jesus drinks wine from a hyssop branch within this. Exodus 12.22 You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood which is in the basin, apply some of the blood in the basin and the lintel, the two doorposts, and, you, uh, and none of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. Why? Because the blood will cover you. Powerful. Why do we drink from the cup grape juice? Because it reminds us of the blood of Jesus that has us covered. Even today. Powerful. And with that, he received and he cried out, it's finished. Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands. Note, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. Jesus released his spirit. It's powerful. When you and I die, We leave this body. Our spirit is set free. For what? To go into the presence of a holy God. Why? Because what Jesus did in that same manner. Justified. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Note the exchange. Jesus, perfect man, died a sinner's death. Why? So that the sinner would not have to die a sinner's death, but could be sanctified because of what Jesus has done. You stand redeemed. You are here. How do we know he died? A lot of people say, well, he just fell asleep. He swooned. He passed out. Well, we look at at the rest of this passage here. It says this. And then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on Sabbath, for that Sabbath was high day, Asked Pilate that the legs would be broken and that they would be taken away. So the soldiers came out to break the legs of the first man. So that's the thief on, on either side and they crucified him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear immediately. Blood and water came out. And he knew he who had seen this testified and his testimony is true. And he who knows that he testifies is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. That's John speaking. 
For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another Scripture, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And after all these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had also come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pounds weight. And so he took a body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings and spices and the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where they crucified him, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because the Jews, the day of preparation had been come. So what ended up happening? Well, we know according to the account, the Roman soldiers come out. We've got to get them off the cross. Why? Because according to Jewish law, no dead people can be on the cross over Sabbath and it's a high Sabbath. That year was a double Sabbath, so you had Passover and then you had the regular Sabbath, two Sabbaths in a row. They go to break Jesus' legs, they're not broke. He can't break them. Why? Because he's dead. Why break a dead guy? Why would they break the legs? Remember the cross. If I got broken legs, I can't lift myself up and breathe. It'll make the death faster. They come to Jesus, he's already dead. Why? Because he gave up his spirit and then they pierce his side. There's a condition called pericardial tamponade. You have the heart and you have a sack around the heart. What happens in extreme trauma? When it, you, you, you fill up with that heart sack, fills up with fluid and compresses the heart. When the heart stops pumping, it fills with fluid. His side was pierced and outflowed blood and water, proving that he was dead. It's been said that Jesus died of a broken heart. The heart that breaks over sin. John says here, I saw all these things and I wrote them so that you would believe within this. And quotes two prophecies, one out of Numbers 12, 9.12 and one out of Zechariah 12.10. The 9.12 says, they shall leave none until morning, nor break one bone according to the statute of the Passover. Why? Because the Passover lamb could not have broken limbs. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb within this. And in Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they'll look on me, the one whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him and mourn only as uh, only son, weeping bitterly. Jesus dies. Joseph of Arimathea, secret disciple, member of the Sanhedrin, comes up with Nicodemus and said, I'd like to bury Jesus in my own tomb. Nicodemus gets a hundred pounds of, of spices. They wrap them. They don't mummify. They wrap them up. They put these spices. They put them inside the tomb. Quick burial into this tomb. They have to get them down according to Jewish law within this. And they put them in the garden tomb. As the account said, there was a garden tomb nearby. And they would put them into that tomb. And Jesus died. And his dead body would be placed into the tomb. And in the minds of everybody watching, all hope is buried. Or is it? Why is it important that a physical Jesus dies on a cross, a physical death, and is physically buried? So that he could rise again. That gives us hope. Paul would write this in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. Now, if we, 
you and I, have died with Christ, symbolically. We believe that we shall also live with Him, literally, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, and He did, is never to die again, and we won't. Death no longer has master over Him, nor is it master over us. For the death that He died, He died once and all for all for sin, but the life that He lives, He lives unto God. That's us. You have eternal life. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. So when we take communion here in a moment, that's what this is really all about. It's really about a memorial and remembering and reminding ourselves of how much Jesus loves us and what He went through. The bread reminding us of His body. The cup reminding us of His blood. The, the power of, of what He has done that transcends thousands of years to offer a sacrifice for every single person that believes. And that's what this communion is for, is for the believer. And knowing what Jesus went through to pay the penalty for your sin, does that give you license to keep on sinning? No. No. But it gives you the ability to value the sacrifice. And that's what we want to do now. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You've given us this, this privilege, this opportunity to be called children of God, children of the Most High. Lord, we thank You that You have given to us a hope, an eternal hope that transcends time and space. That free gift that's given to us. Lord, I pray even now that as we receive this bread in the cup, that we would do so with the knowledge that You love us. That we would consider how deep, how wide, how endless Your love is for us. And that mercy that is new evermore. And to realize that there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Not death, nor life, or principalities, or powers, or anything above this earth. Nothing can separate us from your love. Because Jesus, you said it's finished. We thank you for that. As the worship team leads us in, in worship and meditation and song, I encourage you, take some time, reflect on this. We have a couple of songs set up. When you're ready, come up. You can take a, a cup of juice and, and a cracker. Return to your seat and wait till everybody's been served at the end of the second song, then we'll take the communion together. And again, this table is open for anybody that's put their faith and trust in Jesus. turns his face away 
everybody been served. As we stand before a holy God, know that you are loved. As you stand before a holy God, know that you are seen as His child holy. That the sin that that's used to separate you is no longer there because Jesus paid the price for that sin. The bread that we have in our hand reminds us that all pain, all suffering, all sorrow, and all separation was taken care of at Calvary. And it was finished. We can't add to the salvation by works. We can't make it better. Jesus paid it all. And for that, we can be grateful, thankful. As we hold this bread up, let's tell God thanks. God, we thank you for this reminder, this piece of bread that reminds us of the work that Jesus did. Lord Jesus, the night before you died, you took bread, you broke it, you gave it to your disciples, and you said, take, eat, this is my body. As a reminder given to you. And as often as you eat this bread, remember me. And as we do so, we say thank you. That this is the most pain and suffering that we'll ever see. It only gets better from here. God, we thank you for this bread that we're about to receive. And we take it together as one body of faith, one family. Remembering you, Lord Jesus. Let's all take the bread. In the same way, Jesus took the third cup of the four cups at the Passover meal. The cup of redemption. And he lifted it up. He said, this cup represents my blood. Shed for you. Tonight we have that picture of how bloody that scene would have been. That blood that flowed out of his side from his head, his hands and his feet. The blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God that has covered us and washed away our sins. You are pure. You are holy. You are righteous. You are forgiven. And there is nothing that can undo what Jesus has already done for you. There is power in the blood that has cleansed that does cleanse and will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And Jesus said, as often as you drink this cup, remember that. Remember what that cup means. Remember what was done. God, we thank you for this cup. And we take it together as one body of faith remembering you. Lord Jesus, celebrating this great communion and this great joy within this. Lord, we ask that you would be honored as we look to you, Lord Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We receive this cup by faith. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all drink the cup.
Let's close with this last song and make it a celebration, huh? Okay. in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.